Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. What I found was that culture was very effective in the context of diplomacy, but also not taken very seriously by the State Department. That's Dr. Cynthia Schneider, distinguished professor in the practice of diplomacy at Georgetown University, who teaches, publishes, and organizes initiatives in the field of cultural diplomacy with a focus on relations with the Muslim world. She began her career with a PhD from Harvard in Dutch art, serving as assistant curator of European paintings at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, then a professor of art history at Georgetown University for two decades, during which she was appointed ambassador of the United States of America to the Kingdom of the Netherlands by President Clinton, followed by her appointment as a distinguished professor at Georgetown's School of Foreign Service. In addition to her teaching duties there, she is co-director of three endeavors, the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics at Georgetown, Most Resource, and Timbuktu Renaissance. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me, Max. It's great to talk with you. Well, same here. And boy, do we go back. We go back as far as graduate school when you were pursuing a doctorate in art history. And for 20 years, you were on the Georgetown faculty teaching Baroque and Renaissance art with a specialization in Dutch art of the 17th century and Rembrandt. So what led you from there to make the jump to public service? Well, it, like everything in my life, was not at all part of any kind of master plan, but instead a result of friendship. Because my friend, and my husband Tom's and my friend, Bill Clinton, ran for president. And we had gotten to know the Clintons informally through a social gathering. And when he decided to run for president, we wanted to help and did everything we could, not as official members of the campaign, but nonetheless working hard on the campaign. And so I became you know, much more interested in the workings of government than I had previously been. And in the first term of the Clinton presidency, I was made the vice chair of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, and that got me very interested in the sort of arts in the public sector, the NEA, and the relationship between artists and government. And then in, but I continued teaching at Georgetown at that time. And then in the second term of the Clinton presidency, I was invited to serve as the ambassador to the Netherlands, which was an incredible honor and not something I had ever particularly anticipated. But as you said, with my background in 17th century Dutch art, I spoke Dutch, I'd been to the country 25 times, uh, and I knew the history and the culture. And I found that to be incredibly important as ambassador. I did not particularly know the field of international relations, but you know, I was an academic, so I was used to doing research. I was used to speaking publicly. And that, those are very important aspects of being an ambassador. I had fantastic foreign service officers working with me. Uh, and so I was able, I think, to learn pretty quickly what I needed to know and had fantastic training also beforehand from the State Department. And so I 
served as ambassador for three years in the Netherlands. And it's a fascinating place to serve as ambassador because there's a lot more going on than just U.S.-Dutch relations because it is the international seat of justice. And so we had, while I was there, the Lockerbie trial, the trial of the two Libyans accused of planting the bomb on Pan Am 107 that killed hundreds of people. That was hosted by the Netherlands. But I was very much involved because there were many Americans who came to the trial because their loved ones had been killed on that plane. We had the indictment of Milosevic. We had the Kosovo War. We had, and this tells you how long ago it was, we had a, the COP6 meetings, the Kyoto Protocol meetings on climate change. So there was a great deal of international activity, as well as the very important U.S.-Dutch relations. They're one of our strongest economic partners and a very strong military partner as well. So there was a great deal going on, but I also did something that's pretty unusual for an ambassador, I think. I did a lot with culture. What I found was that culture was very effective in the context of diplomacy, but also not taken very seriously by the State Department. I felt I had two audiences. I had the Dutch, who were very receptive, And I had my own embassy who were less receptive. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they kind of had to do what I said because I was the ambassador. And I do believe that over the course of the time I was there, I did persuade them of the importance and value of culture. And I'll just give you maybe, if I can, a couple of examples of what one is able to do as an ambassador, which is such a privileged fantastic position. Early on in my tenure, the film Saving Private Ryan came out. And I had the idea that I would go to see this film together with my Dutch military, uh, my American military staff at the embassy. And I would invite the Dutch chiefs of staff and their spouses to join us. And we would watch the film together in the movie theater and then come back to the residents and have dinner and a conversation inspired by it afterwards. And I put this idea forward and it kept not appearing on my schedule. (laughs) And I would say, you know, where's the Saving Private Ryan dinner? And my wonderful chief of protocol, Susan Blau, would kind of mumble under her breath. And finally, I said, you're not ever going to organize that, are you? And she said, well, no, of course not. Nobody's ever done that before. You can't go to the movies in the afternoon with the chiefs of staff, you know. And I just said, well, that sort of became my motto. Nobody's ever done that before. And I just said to Susan, well, you know, I really want to do it. And I am asking you to go ahead and organize it. And if it's a disaster, you can say, I told you so. And so there we were, these, all the American military staff, some of whom were female with male spouses, and the Dutch chiefs of staff and their spouses, that was all male with female, in the movie theater, you know, in the late afternoon. And we watched the film together. And I will tell you honestly, Max, I'm not sure what got into me to do this. I hadn't no. even seen the film in advance. I had never done anything like this before. But somehow I had the idea that this was going to work. 
And so we saw the film together and then we went back to the residence and we are sitting around the dinner table and you do have to moderate, orchestrate the conversation. Otherwise people will just talk about the weather or whatever. I did that. And I really wanted everyone to speak, so I knew I would need to kind of draw out the wives of the Dutch military people, otherwise they wouldn't be so likely to speak. And we started a conversation, and it wasn't about what happened in the film. It was about what it meant to be in the military and what it felt like for them to be in the military and what they felt their duty to the military and to their own societies was. And we had the most profound conversation. We had a situation where husbands and wives were saying for the first time whether or not they wanted their children to join the military. It was an extraordinary exchange. And Is there one, compulsory service in the Netherlands for young people? No, not at all. So this was, you know, how do you feel about yourself? Do mm. you value this lifestyle so much that you want our children to do it too? Or do you want, you know, do you think it'd be better for our children to do something else? It was that mm. kind of conversation. And I, I realized afterwards that we were able to have that kind of conversation because we were all of us in a kind of state of emotional openness and vulnerability really after having shared this narrative experience together. And we were all just, and this doesn't last forever, you know, just lasts for a few hours. We were still in that story. And in that context, we were able to share in an extraordinary way. And that for me began a very deep relationship with my own military staff and my father was a World War II veteran so all of those World War II events meant a great deal to me and he accompanied me to some of them but I had after that moment a, a really deep relationship with my own military staff and also with the Dutch military that was enhanced. Also, I used to jog every weekend with members of the Dutch military for a long time with the head of the Air Force. And they made me run in these races on their <laughs> Air Force bases, which was very challenging. And I managed to fly in an F-16 without throwing up. And that's Great. very important. But all of this actually led to something quite concrete and that was my main task regarding the Dutch military was to try to persuade them to buy into our new version of the F-16, the new joint strike fighter. And it was just, it was just beginning at that time. And we were seeking, as we always do with a new weapon system, partners who would contribute different parts. No European a country had yet signed up. So when I heard that the person responsible for this from the Pentagon was going to be coming to meet his counterpart in the Dutch military, this was the number two meeting the number two, I once again uh, called on culture mm -hmm. to help seal the deal uh, because I found out that the American, uh, John Hamry, he now runs CSIS, in a conversation with him in advance, you know, I just tried to get to know him. That's such a fundamental part of diplomacy. It's mm -hmm. people. So I tried to get to know him a little bit. And I found out 
that he loved organ music. Because of my knowledge of Dutch art, I knew that his counterpart uh, in Holland, Hank van Hoof, lived in the town of Alkmaar, which has one of the most beautiful 17th century Dutch organs. So instead of just having a meeting of the two of them in the defense ministry, uh, Hank van Hoof and I planned a whole day for John Amory visiting from the United States, where Hank picked him up at the airport, drove him to Alkmaar, arranged for him to have a private concert at the, by the organ in the cathedral in Alkmaar, uh, and they had lunch together and a tour of this beautiful old town. I wasn't even physically present. It was just the two of them. And at the end of this day, uh, Hank von Hoff committed, signed the Dutch onto the Joint Strike Fighter. Cynthia, you continue to this day thinking about that amalgamation of culture and politics. You run the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics, which is an arts-based initiative housed within a school of international affairs. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, indeed. Well, as I said, I, I left my uh, position of ambassador and all political appointees serve one term and that you're brought into the State Department and then you're brought out. So I went back to Georgetown and I really was committed to this field of culture and diplomacy. I was convinced that culture should be given a more important role in diplomacy. And so I was fortunate to be able to start teaching in the School of Foreign Service. And at Georgetown, uh, I met Derek Goldman, who is my co-founding director of the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics. And we found that we both were addressing some of the same issues from different perspectives. Derek is a professor of theater who'd been working in international theater for some time and had brought fantastic productions to Georgetown. And I was coming at it from the policy side, wanting to involve more artists and their works in policy discussions. Mm -hmm. So we joined together and formed the lab and our mission is to humanize global politics through the power of performance. So we bring um, artists from all over the world to perform in Washington, and we will, I'm sure, be able to do that again someday, and organize around these performances policy discussions. So we invite policymakers for the talk back. So for one thing, that means they have to come watch the performance. Very hard to get uh, policymakers to come to performances unless you give them a speaking role. So we do that and we're happy to do that. And what we're trying to do is to introduce the perspective of artists, which, you know, artists are the canaries in the coal mine in countries. They are the ones who are really holding the aspirations for freedom, for justice, for uh, sociopolitical change, especially in authoritarian countries. I take, for example, a country that's in the news right now, Belarus. We at Georgetown, we were the first place to host the Belarus Free Theater. If you look at what's happening in Belarus right now, it's so inspiring. It's significantly women and 
female cultural leaders who are leading those protests. The Belarus Free Theater has been fighting Lukashenko for over a decade. And the founder, uh, Natalia Kolodia, has left the country with her husband. It wasn't safe for them to be there. She's been living in London for the last few years, but still is fighting for Belarus, trying to get the U.S. and the EU to sanction Lukashenko. So we try to bridge this gap. We create our own productions. We teach a course together in performance and politics. And we have a fantastic fellows program of 10 emerging leaders from all over the world working at this intersection of performance and politics. Cynthia, you are deeply involved in the Muslim world, and that's through both Most Resource, which you developed out of the Brookings Arts and Culture Initiative, and Timbuktu Renaissance. Can you speak a bit about what got you so involved with the Muslim world and with culture in particular there? Yeah, once again, no plan and (laughs) friendship. I uh, had a friend who was looking for a fellowship and trying to find a way to come to the United States and do some research and writing. And I thought, well, maybe Brookings is a likely place. I knew a couple of people there from the State Department. uh, And so I wrote them and they said, well, yes, go and, and meet with this person. And uh, I was lucky to meet with uh, Peter Singer, who was then running their uh, U.S. Islamic initiative. I brought my friend, hoping to get her a job, but as it turned out, uh, Peter was looking for someone to run this new track within the U.S. Islamic World Forum, which Brookings organized for a number of years in Doha, Qatar, and the new track was in arts and culture. And so he ended up hiring me and actually not my friend who ended up going somewhere else. So that was just a fluke, but it was a wonderful platform because it gave me the opportunity every year. I did this for about seven years to bring together groups of arts and cultural leaders from the United States and from Muslim majority communities. And we would meet together over three or four days, and we wrote a couple of policy papers out of this. Uh, But I would say even more significantly, a lot of partnerships were made informally, and people who continue to work together to this day, you know, for example, one of the people who came was Howard Gordon, who was then working on 24, then moved on to Homeland, and he worked very closely with Saad Massani, who was the CEO of Moby Media, Tolo TV, the largest independent media company in Afghanistan. And Howard worked with him on the day developed a 24-style police show in Afghanistan to try to increase the trust in the police by the population. And mm-hmm. Howard helped with that. Now, there were lots of partnerships. So... Uh, And then that platform eventually uh, led me to the Timbuktu Renaissance, which was actually founded at one of the last uh, U.S. Islamic World Forums, where we were given the opportunity to organize, bring together like 30 people who were interested in the challenge that a group of us, Malians and Americans, wanted to address, and that is how to support Mali's recovery from conflict by focusing on Mali's culture. Little background, as you may remember, Mali, located in West Africa, 
was occupied, half the country was occupied by extremists in 2012. And in 2013, French-led forces expelled the large number of them. Then the beautiful historic city of Timbuktu had been occupied. Timbuktu was absolutely comparable to Florence. It was a magnet for scholars and artists and thinkers from all over West Africa and the Middle East. And they were drawn there both by the great universities and also money. Like Florence, it was a center of commerce. And it was also the kind of heartbeat, the founding place for music in Mali. And in Mali, a largely illiterate oral culture, music is the way you communicate messages, both about the past and present and the future. So our goal was to think about and come up with a plan to use Molly's culture as a way to support her future and her path back from this period of conflict. It was once again, friendship. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris Shields, who happens to be, this will be familiar to you, happens to be uh, John Walsh's nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, John was my boss at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston before he left to become the director of the Getty Museum. And we've stayed close friends ever since. And I happened to be one time just talking to him for fun. And and he said, what are you up to? And I said, well, if you, you can't believe it, but I'm looking for a Muslim hip hop artist. And that was to come to one of my uh, Brookings meetings. And John said, oh, I know just the person. Uh, and that was his nephew, Chris Shields, who was a music producer. Chris indeed did find a fantastic artist, uh, Ali Shaheed Mohammed of the tribe called Quest, who came to one of our meetings. And Chris and I became friends. Chris had long been friends with Manny Ansar, uh, a Malian who was the founder of this extraordinary festival called the Festival of the Desert. This festival used to take place outside Timbuktu. There is such a place. It's outside Timbuktu (laughs) annually in January. And people came from all over the world, not just Malians and Tuaregs from all over the Sahel, but also Americans, Europeans, Bono went there, Jimmy Buffett, Robert Plant, uh, who all wanted to make this pilgrimage because Malian music is so extraordinary. So Manny was, is, is one of my co-directors and was there at the creation of this project, which also involved scholars from Timbuktu, such as Abdelkader Hydra, who is the man who saved the manuscripts of Timbuktu from destruction, because there was a lot of concern when the city was occupied by these Al-Qaeda-linked extremists, that if they found the manuscripts of Timbuktu written primarily during this Renaissance period, they would be destroyed. So Dr. Hydra engineered this amazing scheme, uh, which is told in a fantastic book called The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. He engineered this amazing scheme to sneak out the manuscripts every night, a few boxes at a time, and get them in cars, on boats to get them to safety in Bamako. 
and he did indeed save over 300,000 manuscripts. He was also present at our first meeting and is also part of this project. So what we do primarily is we have brought the first public concerts back to Timbuktu. And you might say, well, why is, you know, a place struggling with lingering extremism and has chronic problems of distrust and division? Why would you have concerts? But that is exactly what the town needed. And that's exactly what the mayor and the imam of Timbuktu said to us, you have to bring music back here, because that is what brings everyone together. You see, during the occupation, they were led by Al-Qaeda-linked extremists, but members of the local population also took that side. Not so much out of an ideology as out of desperation. You know, people need money to support their families. They offered it. So after the occupation, nobody really knew who was on whose side. Uh, and there was tremendous distrust and division. But for concerts, everyone came together and mm -hmm. saw each other again, and was dancing together again, and really rebuilt the bonds of trust. Cynthia, I have to ask you a question about books, not from Mali, but from your own study. You're working on a new book called Culture on the Front Lines, 21st Century Diplomacy. What's the thrust of this book? Well, the thrust of this book is pretty much exactly what I've been saying. It is um, emphasizing the importance of culture, not so much anthropological culture, but creative culture and its actors in the world, in international affairs, and arguing that policymakers, people working in foreign policy, should integrate those very people, the musicians, the artists, the filmmakers, the bloggers, into their thinking and their planning, they should listen to what they say because very often they tell you what's actually going on in the society much more than the policymakers or members of the government. And we should shift our approach to culture from the US government. We should shift it from one of sending Americans around the world, which worked well in the Cold War, but is really out of date in the digital world, we should shift that focus to leveraging local voices. And that means using our expertise, which we have uh, for production, distribution, marketing, digitization, use that expertise to help local artists, wherever they are, reach their audiences and magnify their impact and also be able to support themselves. How long do you think it will take the State Department, your alma mater, to rebuild all of the bridges that have been burned over these last four years? Well, it is, of course, you know, just a tragedy uh, to see what has happened to the United States position in the world and what has happened to our foreign service who are extraordinarily dedicated and really brilliant people. And they have been so 
misused and abused by this administration. I just published an article on Trump's political appointee ambassadors, you know, and I felt I could write about this since I am one. And I talk about how they are just going against every norm in the State Department. Government agencies, contrary to what this president says, are not partisan places. You cannot say anything partisan in the State Department or any other government agency or do anything that way. And here you have a situation where these Trump-appointed ambassadors are dismissing long-time serving foreign service officers for not being loyal enough to them or to Trump. It is just so far beyond the norm. But even with all these terrible things happening, I don't think it will necessarily take a long time for the United States to regain its position as an admired model in the world if, and, and this is the if, uh, if our actions are commensurate with what we say. So it is not enough for who hopefully President Biden to say, you know, the United States is back, we support democracy, we are a values-led country, we believe in science, you know, we are going to be your partner again, and we are going to support people seeking freedom all over the world. You can't just say that, you have to do it. What happens to our alliance with countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt? Do we continue those without paying any attention to what is happening to the people in those countries? The difference with diplomacy now compared to the Cold War is that you can't do two things at once. You know, during the Cold War, we stood for freedom and democracy in Eastern Europe while we were assassinating duly elected leaders in South America and Africa. You can't do that anymore because everyone knows what you're doing all over the world. So as long as our actions are commensurate with our words, I think the world is hungry for the United States to become a values-led leader again. I would only say inshallah. And thank you, Cynthia, for making time for today's conversation. I really appreciated it very much. Thank you very much for inviting me, Max. It's great to be here. We've been speaking today with Dr. Cynthia Schneider, Distinguished Professor in the Practice of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. Thanks for listening to Artscoping. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating so other listeners can find their way to us.